Inflation. What's the deal? How real are vibes in monetary policy? Does industrial policy even make any sense? And how does crappy anti-monopoly policy explain why Goodreads is so terrible? To discuss, I have on Jason Furman, Harvard economics professor, chair of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Um, but honestly, I might be more excited to spend the next hour hanging out with Kyla Scallon, author of Kyla's newsletter on macro, corner, coiner of the vibe session, and the only TikTok influencer you can actually learn something from. Uh, she has a book coming out in April 2024 with an amazing title, In This Economy, uh, which I got to say, I'm a little more excited to read than I was um, uh, getting into the path to prosperity, Hamilton Project ideas on income security, education, and taxes, and prepping for this video just on title alone. Uh, Kyla and Jason, welcome to China Talk. Thank you. Great to be here. All right, so let's kick it off with um, Kevin McCarthy. Um, there was like a hot minute in there where I thought we were going to have some like really cool coalition government and have all these like great moderate policies passed. Um, is, is that like, is, is there no timeline in which that actually happens um, in the 2020s in America, Jason? I fear there's probably mostly no timeline. Now, look, we do get bits of it every now and then, right? We had in the previous session of conference, Congress an infrastructure bill and a chips bill. Those were a minority of the Republican Party joined the Democratic, a majority of the Democratic Party. This time around, we had the debt limit and the CR were handled in that manner. So some of those sort of have to happen. Some of those don't have to happen. But in terms of making it sort of your central focus, the way you're organizing yourself, sort of your official operating premise going forward, um, never seen that before. I don't expect we're going to see it going forward. Is it easier to do like gangs of, of seven and nine in the Senate just for like structural reasons of, you know, six limit, six term limits, like people know each other better? Um, is there is there some dynamic of, of, of this being more easy to pull off in the in the Senate potentially in the House? Yeah. And look, the, in the Senate, you, you know, there, there used to be these things in political science where you could look at where people were on the issues and you'd look at a graph and you'd see a cloud of blue dots and a cloud of red dots. And they'd have some overlap in the House, at least. Now, the most conservative Democrat is much more liberal than the most liberal Republican is. There's just no overlap in the House. In the Senate, you still represent an entire state. States have more diverse political views than congressional districts do. And so there's a little bit more overlap. Add to that the six-year thing um, and the like. But there's still policies that poll at 75% that don't happen because of partisan politics, right? Yes. it's. I mean, to me, you know, when I worked in government that we didn't get, um, you know, as high taxes on the rich as we would have liked, I regretted that a lot. I wish we could have done that, but I sort of got the Republicans didn't like that. We did like that. And there's a difference of opinion. You can't get things done when there's a difference of opinion. And there's all these things where lots and lots of people agree and you still um, can't get them done um, that to me are, you know, have, have always been more baffling and, and more frustrating. What's your what's your top three, like actually popular things you wish would happen? I mean, there's things outside of my domain, like people point to things on gun control that um, have that feature where they pull better than they do 
in Congress. Um, you know, when I was in government, you know, hardly the most important thing in the world, but corporate tax reform was something where our plan was pretty similar to the Republican plan and we couldn't get it done. Now, Trump got it done by basically taking the thing that was a consensus and instead of doing a rate like 28%, did a rate like 21%. And a lot of the structure was actually similar to what we'd talked about before. So it turned out the Republicans were holding out for a better deal with lower revenue. Um, and maybe they were justified in, from their perspective in holding out for that better deal. Um, then there's things like paid leave um, and, frankly, a value-added tax that you know every other country in the world basically has. We don't have. We'd be much better off with. Um, but obviously, there's not a political consensus around those, especially around a value-added tax. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's funny because we're talking about you know, debt ballooning and the deficit being unsustainable, especially because rates have risen so fast because of what the Federal Reserve is doing. And so it's almost funny that we can't like get stuff done, even though we have so much government debt. So could you just walk us through like how you're feeling about the deficit? I know that you said it's probably time to start reducing it, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I change my feeling about the deficit multiple times every day. Um, and that's because I have a bookmark bar on my browser that goes straight to the real 10-year interest rate. <laughs> and when that goes up, I'm like more worried. When that goes down, I'm uh, less worried. I'm only slightly exaggerating um, the way I approach this issue. Yeah, I, I think the deficit is a place where there's just sort of no room for perma-hawks or perma-doves. You know, the people who always think the sky is falling, I've been around them for decades. Lots of stuff has happened. The sky hasn't fallen. Um, and the perma-doves, that everything is always and everywhere fine, you know, have to look at things that have happened not just in Greece, um, but also in the UK, which had an IMF program in the 1970s uh, that happened in Canada in the 1980s. You've seen it in advanced economies, too. So, um, you know, what worries me is the triple whammy of the high level of debt as a share of GDP. Now, I think 100% is fine. I think 150% is fine. I don't think we'd get into a big problem. But then you add to that um, the primary deficit, which actually rose over the last two years, which is surprising in an economy in as good shape as we are. Um, and then add to that the place I started with, the high real interest rates. And I think people are going to have to start paying attention. Um, the difficulty I have, though, is I think it's impossible economically to continue on our current trajectory. I also think it's impossible politically to raise taxes in any meaningful way or cut spending in any meaningful way. And it's also impossible that all three of those things are impossible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been examples of financial maneuvering in the past, like what Alexander Hamilton did with IPOing at the first national bank rate and doing, you know, debt equity, all that stuff. So do you think the United States is at too much of a gridlock to do anything like that to really fix the debt? Because it does seem like we're at a stalemate. Like, do you think there could be some sort of innovation happening? I I think there's just a sort of common sense, old-fashioned, you're raising taxes or you're cutting spending. Yeah, um, you know, there's some things, you know, I wish two years ago that we had lengthened the maturity of our debt back when long-term interest rates are low. Um, there's always a trade-off when you lengthen the maturity, you raise long-term interest rates, but that trade-off would have actually been a good thing for the economy when we were trying to control inflation, not a bad thing. So I think there's some things around the edges you can do with debt management. 
Um, there's some ideas floating around there of the government, you know, investing much more in the markets and the like. Um, I wouldn't do anything like that. I certainly wouldn't sell the many assets we have. Um, I think there's really just the old-fashioned way to deal with this issue. And you've mentioned before in other podcasts that you had had a failure of imagination with with some stuff. Do you feel like there's a you're having any failures of imagination right now with things like beyond the debt, just in general with the economy? Oh, absolutely. I'm having failures of imagination <laughs> right now. I just unfortunately don't know what they are. Um, I'll only figure it out later. But look, yeah, I mean, take something like in the fall of 2021, I think I correctly grasped the dynamic around inflation and understood it, frankly, much better than what you heard coming out of the Fed at the time. I thought it was going to be higher, more persistent, more stubborn, et cetera. And then I said, what should we do about that? Well, at the time, the Fed was saying, we're not going to raise rates for two years. And I said, oh, that's crazy. There's going to be a lot more inflation. They shouldn't do that long. But once they set the benchmark there, it made me think like, oh, let's raise, maybe they should raise every other meeting next year, raise by 75 basis points in the year 2022. And that's what I went out and said. Um, Larry Summers, well-known hawk on inflation, he said, what Jason said isn't enough. They should raise by 100 basis points next year. Um, they ended up raising by 75 basis points per meeting for multiple meetings in a row. They just did something much, much bigger um, than I had imagined they should do. Now, sometimes failure of imagination is small c conservatism, and it makes sense. Um, you're worried that if you do big, large things, you might cause unanticipated problems. And if you had asked me at the end of 2021, you know, I'd say, oh, if you raise interest rates that fast, you might cause a financial crisis. You might cause a banking crisis. You need to be a bit more careful. And the Fed grasped that, number one, they were much better than I did. Number one, they're really far away from where they needed to be. And number two, that they could, if it caused a financial problem, they had other tools that they could use to clean it up. And so they really focused, let's set interest rates to get inflation right, and then we'll use other tools to clean up the mess. And I think that strategy... Um, you know, has has very much been vindicated. Are there any structural things about the Fed and how it sort of looks at and processes the economy that you think could be improved, um, either by sort of like personnel, uh, different backgrounds, more analysis, less analysis, uh, you know, having folks with weird backgrounds on the Fed board? Like, what are your, you know, five crazy, five weird tricks to improve the sort of process of generating monetary policy in America. Right. So let me first of all take it bigger. I think there's been a huge convergence of monetary policy around the world. And in some ways, that's good. No one's doing it really terribly, but it makes it harder to learn about things that are even better. And so I wish there were more central banks around the world experimenting. I've advocated a higher inflation target in the United States. Um, if I had my way, I'd, I'd have New Zealand do that first wait five years and see how it worked out there before we tried it here. And there's just very little experimentation around the world on the part of central banks. And as a result, I think we're not sort of learning quite as much about how to make things better. Um, as I said, though, that also means we're not having any that are total disasters. So the first thing is just more experimentation around the world. Um, in the United States, I'm not much of a fan of the regional Federal Reserve Bank's how their heads um, get selected. It's a very sort of undemocratic, opaque, um, problematic thing. Um, I think there's too much viewpoint diversity um, within the Fed. Um, 
you know, itself. Like I sort of like that it's mostly coming from an economic perspective. Um, so I think I don't necessarily want like every form of economic heterodoxy there, but even within the economic uh, perspective, there's sort of a greater variety of perspectives that is represented by your, your typical Fed research. And, and then also, frankly, the staff at least are almost all Democrats. Um, you know, I, I like the Democratic Party a lot, but I always feel smarter when I'm around people that, uh, you know, have different points of view. So I don't, I don't think they can make that a criteria in hiring, but I'd be happier if I knew the Democratic staff had more people that were sort of, you know, got grumpier about tax increases or something, even though that's not in the Fed's purview. Um, isn't it like... Is it worth trying to swing for the fences with monetary policy, though? Isn't the downside so like like, you know, I feel like that like the like the ceiling you would get from better monetary policy is way uh, like the like the delta up is like way uh, smaller than like the delta down for like trying something and screwing it up. Oh, I agree with that. So but it's just sort of it's all a matter of scale. I mean, would I want to take over the Fed and shift to yield curve control plus a totally different inflation target plus only meeting twice a year plus like something else all at once of course not uh you know but you know i've said they should raise the target to a two to three percent range there are people who hear me say that and are like you're nuts that would be dramatic that would be you know blowing everything up it's all working fine um, I think that's within the range of things where one can tinker and experiment and try to find something better. And, and look, I also think whatever we do about monetary policy can't just be about what happened over the last three years. It has to be to some degree over what happened over the last 15 years. And so I don't think we should forget that we were stuck at the zero lower bound, that we had a really slow recovery after the financial crisis, and that could happen again. That's definitely not top of mind right now, um, but it should be there. And, and and by the way, that's a sort of debate I have. I mean, it's not really well represented on Twitter, but you go around the world to conferences at the IMF or something like that. There's a lot of people that thought monetary policy was doing too much in the wake of the financial crisis, and that's why we got inflation. I think monetary policy was doing too much in 2021, mm -hmm. um, but that's very different. And so I do think there's still an unresolved global debate around things like, should you ever have quantitative easing? Uh, not the more narrow debate of, did we have too much quantitative easing in the year 2021? And, you know, the Fed has such a limited toolkit too. Like they can raise rates and do their balance sheet and that's basically it. And so when we talk about inflation being between two to 3%, what would we have to see in the labor market in order to s support that for the Fed? I don't know. I mean, right now, wait, you know, right now, my biggest concern about inflation not falling below 3% is that wage growth is more consistent with inflation around 3.5% um, than what we're seeing on the price side. I certainly think it would be great if it worked out that workers got larger real wage increases for a year or two. Um, there's a lot to make up for in terms of what they uh, where they were before, but it can't be that if you told me over the next five years, wages are going to grow at 5% a year, I would almost guarantee you that inflation um, was going to be above 3%. And so at some point, you're going to have to see wage growth slow. 
Um, some of that's happened already without a higher unemployment rate. And so, you know, we've had this wonderful loosening of labor markets where job openings have um, gone down without the unemployment rate going up. And, you know, could we see more of that, more of a sort of normalized labor market, you know, steady wage gains, just not larger than are sustainable? Um, you know, I, th I think something like that is what we'd, we'd have to see. And so when we look at like what's going on in the labor market with some of the strikes, some of the labor market movements that we're seeing, how do you think that will impact the direction of wages? Like, you know, the auto workers are asking for a 40% increase. And obviously that's very microscopic in the grand scheme of things. But do you think that we will start to see workers ask for higher wages in, in this fashion? Yeah. If you look at surveys of employers or even surveys of workers in terms of what wages they expect, those have actually come down over time. And so you have these, you know, extremely salient, visible things like the auto worker strike. Uh, but then you have thousands of other companies that you only know about if you look at the data or look at surveys of them that are going the other direction. So I do think a lot of some of the wage increases we saw, nominal wage increases we saw, were one-time things in 2021 and 2022. And I wouldn't necessarily expect them quite as much going forward. But um, but to me, you know, you, you started this conversation on the labor market. I think that was the right place to start it because all the other stuff people talk about with inflation, I think, is just a, a much smaller deal than what's going on with the labor market. The Fed themselves has said that, that they're, you know, it's it, we're fixing inflation to stabilize the labor market. And I feel like the labor market has been tossed aside in this conversation about inflation. Yeah. And look, it's easier to focus on like what's happening to the price of oil. Um, yeah. But the thing about the price of oil is it sort of sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down and it passes through some to prices more broadly, but not a huge amount um, to prices more. You know, one thing that you've mentioned before, you know, the money illusion, this idea that people feel like they've done the work to get an increase in wages, but everybody else is, you know, everyone else is responsible for an increase in prices. And I feel like recently we've really started to pay attention to the expectations that um, uh, expectations and how they shape the economy. And so I'm curious, like, how do you think that people's emotions and underlying feelings end up influencing the economy at large? Well, I think the interesting thing here is in some ways, um, I think you're very right that things like vibe sessions can be real and emotions and feelings can matter a lot. Um, in some ways, though, people's economic behavior can just be completely at odds um, with what their vibes are. And so consumer spending has been quite strong at the same time that people are really negative about the economy. Uh, moreover, if you look at polling, if you poll, what do you think of economic policy? What do you think of Biden's economic policy? It's rock bottom. If you poll consumer sentiment, it's low, but it's been rising. Um, and as the economy's gotten better, consumer sentiment, as inflation's come down, um, consumer sentiment's gotten better. So I find it sort of a little weirdly baffling that people's answers to political questions, to economic questions, and choices about how to spend money are all sort of moving in different directions, you know, possibly for different reasons right now. Yeah. And one thing that's making people feel bad right now is student loan payments starting back up. And you've mentioned before that you wish that you had been outspoken on student loans 
So is there something like that in the broader macrosphere, like with vibes, whatever, that you wish you were more outspoken on right now? I think student loans are an resuming or a negative for the economy in the short run, um, but a negative measured in a few tenths. I think there's this problem with recession forecasting um, that people are looking under the lamppost to find their keys. And the things under the lamppost are things like the strike, the shutdown, student loans restarting. And each one of those, we can actually quantify quite well. And when you quantify, each one of them is like a 10. Um, and recessions tend to come from somewhere else that you're not looking for that's not um, under the lamppost. Some of those things are vibes, and we don't quite have some good way to predict and, and know what's going on um, with those. But, um, you know, and, and the student loan resumption, by the way, it had to happen, even if it's a minus for growth right now. Um, Did it really, though? <laughs> If we, if, we, if we wanted to switch to a different way of funding um, college um, and grad school, we could choose to do that. Um, and by the way, this loan repayment, you know, the, you know a lot of you know, like doctors and lawyers who weren't paying interest on their loans either, not just, uh, not just podcasters. Hey, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wide range of outcomes. Don't, don't, um, uh, don't uh, cast too much aspersions on this, um, uh, on this profession. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm also curious. So, uh, you know, I grew up in this zero rate world. I've never seen rates like this. I don't think anybody really has. And so when we think about living in a higher rate world, what do you think that people should be prepared of for? Like, what are they not thinking about that they should be? It just affects everything from macro yeah. policy, as we were talking about before, and the government's budget deficit. Um, houses, and, and some of the people I feel the worst for right now, people stuck in a house. Yeah, at a low mortgage, yeah. um, who are deciding they can't move, you know, speculative investments. I mean, we, you're, you know, your entire life, you, there's been these just amazing speculative uniform, unicorn companies. Part of them existed because they went to investors and said, I may not make anything for five or 10 or 15 years, but there's a pot of gold there eventually. Mm -hmm. um, if you're losing, using a low discount rate, a pot of gold in 15 years is a really attractive thing. If you're using a high discount rate, I don't know, why should I invest in some fancy new startup when I can get 5% on government bonds? So yeah. it's just going to change a lot of things to the degree it lasts. Um, and it is an open question how much of this is just about fighting inflation right now. And once the flight fight is definitively won, interest rates will go back down versus they're going to stay elevated. Um, and, you know, I think of some reasons why interest rates are higher now than they were four years ago. Look, in a permanent way, like our debt is higher. And when debt is higher, interest rates are higher. But the types of reasons I can think of give you sort of more like 50 to one percentage point, 50 basis points to one percentage point higher interest rates. And, you know, we've seen interest rates go up by, you know, even more than that. So I don't know. I feel like I'm asking you a lot of prediction questions. So sorry about that. But I am curious, you know, when we're watching the government do what they're doing and you spent time in the government, like doing all this policy work, um, and it just seems like it's becoming more and more polarized. And we talked about this at the top of the show. But do you think there's a case to be made that the government like literally just kind of stops working? Or do you think the um, exorbitant privilege that the USA has will prevent that from happening? Yeah, I mean, this is the... Maybe I'll like re make, let me rephrase that to be like a little tighter. So I think like if if we get sort of the 
level of if we go back to like Obama circa 20, you know, uh, second half of the first term Obama and you just have split government and like you can't really pull any fiscal levers anymore and you start to have this sort of sequester dysfunction or whatever. Like what is the how how bad is it to have um, sort of no legislative anything for like another decade or maybe answer the broad one? I, I didn't mean to interrupt I mean, you. That was I mean, a good well, question. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, there's a few things like no legislative anything for a decade is like basically impossible in that we have discretionary spending and we've had government shutdowns for periods of a few weeks. If for like five years, no one in the military was being paid, like it would be the end of the United States as a country. So, you know, in some ways, the things that are utterly impossible to happen won't happen. And so, yes, there may be a rolling series of shutdowns that may be terrible. But literally, something will happen at some point. Um, I think all of this chips away in a small way at the United States. It gives us a little bit more of an interest rate premium than we need to have. And look, much more expensive for the United States to borrow than it is for Germany to borrow. It's about the same cost as the United States to borrow as Italy to borrow. And there's something sort of absurd about it. We're supposed to have this exorbitant privilege. I, you know, I feel the United States economy is safer than the Italian economy, as much as I love all sorts of things about Italy. Um, why isn't it much cheaper for us to borrow than it is for Italy to borrow? So I think part of it is, um, you know, we have more dysfunction than we need to. Italy, by the way, obviously also has its share of dysfunction. I don't need to pick, need to pick on them. So um, I think it's okay. You know, I think ultimately these things are comparative and, and you want to be the if you want to survive, you need to be like the least ugly horse in the glue factory. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a lot of great options for global reserve currencies other than the dollar. So I think we'll keep all of that, but we'll keep it at all the higher cost and in less attractive terms. And I think we're seeing that, you know, maybe seeing that some of that already. It's kind of funny because like everyone was like, oh, crypto, like CBDCs and, you know, Bitcoin could be. The reserve currency and i know you're not like a huge fan of crypto but i'm curious like what do you see as a revolution that could happen you know whether it's in labor markets and i know you've talked about robots not taking enough jobs or supply chains or getting us to another planet entirely like what do you see as a potential like revolution in that space spaces i mean not a huge fan of crypto would be considerably more polite than my feelings about crypto i think it's all a scam uh That's at that uh, or mostly a scam, and, and the other parts of it are well-intentioned but pointless. So, um, uh, so on that, we'll stay on that for half a second. So, Jason, I was uh, I feel like I was very voyeuristic and like looking at what you're reading now. Currently, you've got both the Michael Lewis book and the Iliad going. Is there anything like homerically tragic about SPF, or is just all it's just like swindles all the way down? Um. So conjunction of those two is that the Iliad came out a week ago um, and Michael Lewis's book um, came out now. But um, I had not thought about the parallels. You're much smarter in making that link than I did. But certainly, yes, this book has like quite the arc. I mean, a little bit more like Icarus. I mean, the Iliad sort of everything goes from like miserable to worse, um, whereas this has like a bright shining moment in the middle of the SBF book. Um, I don't know exactly how it'll end, of course. <laughs> Sorry. Back to, um, uh, uh, you know, what, what productivity boost we can really hope for. Um, so, you know, 
I mean, there's two separate things. What could we do to bring about some big, crazy change? And there, I think the main thing is to just not get in the way of AI. Um, that's our best shot here. And mostly it's the private sector doing it and mostly just like not doing stupid regulations. Hmm. And by the way, just because they want to be regulated doesn't mean it's a good idea. It's the incumbents that want to be regulated. And some of that is that they don't want as much competition and challenge. But, you know, I also think one shouldn't count on a big transformation. You know, to go back to the macro discussion we we're having, um, there's this variable R minus G, the interest rate minus the growth rate is important for the deficit. R has gone up a lot. Some people are saying, oh, don't worry, maybe G will go up a lot, to which I respond, maybe G will go up a lot, maybe it won't. Um, but I think you do want to make your planning sort of thinking the future is like the past, not thinking there'll be some radical discontinuity. So on the sort of AI, like uh, regulation killing AI, I had a, a good chat with a, a friend the other day who was making the case that like, if you have technological change, which changes people's jobs like longer than like one working age life. Um, it could be, you know, two working age, you know, two generations or, or three generations or one generation. It's okay. But once you get to that like sub one generation thing and the pace of change really ends up making like aging people out of their jobs far faster than it, um, you know, than you had potentially in past technological transitions, then you can start to see um, a lot of, you know, social unpleasantness or sort of just regulatory barriers in the terms of like, you know, occupational licensing for like human beings doing things that AI should really be doing. Are you sort of worried on both dimensions of like just the, the you know, the open AIs and, and anthropics of the world trying to like box out their competition as well as, you know, from the from the bottom up of, of all these folks who are about to be, uh, you know, whose jobs are about to change dramatically or maybe not exist, you know, figuring out ways to lobby their, you know, local uh, their lawmakers to, to make sure that there's a person in every taxi or what have you. Yeah. So I saw someone quip the other day on Twitter that all of us lost our jobs due to technological change. We're all farmers who are temporarily doing something else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, this, I think there's two separate issues here. One is the prediction one of how we think these developments will affect the labor market. The second is the policy one, and they're related, but they're not exactly related. Um, on the prediction one, you know, to think the future will be like the past isn't going to always get you the right answer, but it's going to get you the right answer 95% of the time. And our ability to know when we're in that other 5% is really weak enough um, that I'm more comfortable with um, extrapolation from the past than I am with trying to foresee the future, knowing I'll get it wrong one out of 20 times. But, you know, economists predicting job losses have gotten it wrong so far. Uh, you know, 19, not, not, not just economists, people, 19 out of 20 times. I think there's a few things. One is a lot of these things replace parts of our jobs, not all of our job. These things were better able to read, um, you know, radiologists' cancer scans radiologists also talk to other doctors. They also talk to patients. They also coordinate. There's a lot of things they do other than just reading scans. Same things with um, short haul truckers, you know, people trucking things around Boston. Um, even if somebody could drive the truck for them, somebody would need to load, unload, talk to the people when they got there, et cetera. So it replaces parts of jobs. It makes us richer and then we want more of other stuff. Um, you know, one of the big surprises to somebody 
if they had made a forecast 100 years ago, is just how many restaurants we have and how many people are working in restaurants. And it's because we're richer and we can afford to go um, to restaurants. Of course, there's the jobs no one could have foreseen. Um, podcasters was not on anyone's list 100 years ago and um, or parts of jobs. And, um, you know, but and then there's the final one. The reason things have always worked out in the past is that ultimately people can uh, compete with robots. And in the past, they've competed by lowering their wages. So part of why we've kept the jobs has been this really unpleasant increase in inequality. That last one to me is the biggest question mark going forward. Maybe AI is going to replace high-skilled jobs and we'll have to bargain our wages down. And they won't compete quite as much at some of the more manual ends of the spectrum. And so it's possible we're going to have the first technology we've had in a while that is inequality reducing. Gone on for a while, um, but let me do the second half. So there's the, here's what I think is going to happen. Let's say you told me as a policymaker, this is going to be good for jobs and it's going to be bad for jobs. I still don't think you can make a regulation on something because you think it'll be bad for jobs. Um, That's just not something we've ever done before. It's not something we're good enough at predicting. And so we think it's going to be bad for jobs. What policymakers should be doing is figuring out how to change education or figuring out how to have subsidies for jobs or figuring out a UBI, which I'm not that much of a fan of. But like, I think just even if AI causes the problems, AI isn't necessarily the solution to the problem. And so uh, certainly the economy, jobs, inequality, that stuff, the solution has to be outside the AI domain. I, I'm an active Twitter or X user as well. And I saw this tweet that was talking about, you know, even in a post-scarcity world, there's still an unlimited demand for competition of status. So it's this idea, like a lot of people talk about with AI, like we're just going to stop working and we're going to like lay by the beach and do all this stuff. Um, but there's still this competition for status. Do you align with that? Like, do you think that there, number one, is a world where we could all be laying on the beach and hanging out? Or do you think like the status games are preventing that or something else? Um, you know, work has been an important part of meaning in people's lives. You know, for me, it's easy to sort of by introspection overstate that because most of what I do is actually like a hobby, not a job. Um, you know, literally probably half of what I do in any given day, like this podcast, no one would fire me if I wasn't doing this podcast and I'm not getting paid, um, to do this podcast. So is this work or is this a hobby? Uh, I'm not really sure it all blurs together um, for me. Um, but you look at polls of what people in a much wider variety of jobs than the one I have have, and for them, like they're often happier at work. Their friends come from work, uh, and they're proud of the jobs they do. So I might I try to guard against being an extreme case, but I look at the data and I think work is quite important. Um, you're asking me a sort of deeper, more like metaphysical question than I normally get into. But I think I think a world works better where there's lots of different dimensions of status. Um, if I, you know, if there's only one way, you know, just take our students here in the college, if they literally just judge themselves on math ability, half of them would be below the median and half of them, you know, and, and feeling sort of miserable about themselves. But if some people judge themselves on math ability and some people judge themselves on like, are they great actors? And some people judge themselves on, um, you know, 
Do they have fun conversations late at night on parties? And are they good at doing that? Um, everyone can be above average. Um, and maybe even everyone can be the best at something as long as um, ideas about status and meaning and purpose are you know, multidimensional. I think it all works out better when it collapses to a single dimension. That's when it becomes sort of zero sum and, and people are unhappy. So more ways of making more status multidimensional, I think, is better. Yeah, that's where, where you get the Taiping um, rebellion when Imperial China, like if you weren't a, you know, if you weren't like on the official, like your status was entirely driven by where you are on the official ladder. And like, if you don't get it, you either like become a Taoist and retreat from the world um, or you get really angry and like try to revolt. So uh, I thought that was so obvious. I didn't make that exact. I didn't use that example. But if you think for some of your listeners, they might not have immediately leapt to it. Fine. Jesus Christ, Jason. <laughs> Um, uh, I mean, I actually think, frankly, I think about a little bit of Harvard versus MIT. Um, MIT, there's a little bit more of a unidimensional status thing. And I think here yeah. there, there's, there actually is like quite a diversity of what students are interested in. I, I think it does create more happiness. Um, what am I, what, what, do, yeah. Do you have a favorite, like non Ivy League uh, trad dimension of happy, of, of uh, status you'd, you'd like to um, uh, get a little more love? Um, I don't know how, how, you know, how many books a year you read on, on post onto Goodreads. I think that should be the, the primary way in which people assess status. And I think you should get bonus points if your reading includes, you know, diverse set of things like graphic novels, plays, the Iliad and the latest Sam Bankman Fried book. All right, come on. You need it. You what's a self critique. What's something you suck at that you think people should, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, respect more. <laughs> Where's your, um, where's your, sh where, where, where's the sense of humility? Shame I suck at humility. No, I don't know. Um, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm in awe of like, I, I'm not, I don't find myself super creative, um, uh, and super innovative and I'm in awe of people who are, I'm not very entrepreneurial. I would much rather work for an established organization. If somebody has some crazy idea, my response and instinct is usually if that was a good idea somebody would have done it already. So I don't want to be a party to it. And so if, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, or any one of many people over the course of history had asked my advice, um, a lot of things we have now wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be there. So people who can take risks, be super creative, you know, see that thing, that failure of imagination, um, I think probably have a slightly higher error rate than I have and have way higher upside uh, than I have to. So let's bring that back to to sort of policymaking generally. Are there any like, you know, people in history or like, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that you think would be really cool senators or um, cabinet officials or, or even presidents just for the, you know, forest for the trees, like like lateral thinking type stuff? You have this sort of conception of like policy entrepreneurs. And I think if everyone had the, you know, Jason Furman like angle of just, you know, not being able to or being, you know, less attuned to like seeing, uh, you know, seeing different sides of things or whatever, then maybe more things would get done. And my, my sense is that the institutions just, you know, beat, either beat the life out of those folks or just encourage them to sort of go in a different direction. I'm curious, you know, if you think it would if there is like a world in which you can craft a government where sort of more of that like 
entrepreneurial yep. spirit could be you know inculcated leading to better governance yep. across a lot of different yep. dimensions i mean i think what you want i mean decisions in government are such group decisions and so what you want is a good mixture um in some and i think that's probably true of any organization which is you want one person who generates variance they come up with 10 ideas and the 10 ideas range from catastrophic to unbelievable transformative and they can't quite tell the difference um because they're just generating variance um and then you have somebody else who has sort of a certain amount of judgment and can like kill the four ideas that are really bad and maybe not so much stodginess that they do let one of the upper tail ones go through and so i think that combination of variance generators and sort of judgmental selectors are a good way for organizations to function. Um, I agree with you, Jordan, that I think that the variance generators, there are fewer of them in government. Um, and by the way, the variance generators need to know when to get overruled. Um, and, you know, and I would do that with my own staff when I was running CEA. I'd be like, I have these three ideas and I think they're good, but argue with me. And if you think they're really bad, we're not going to do them. But if you can't, you know, just because you at first you don't like it, um, isn't good enough for me. But if it's second and third, you don't like it. Um, you know, I'm going to give in and let you be the sort of curator of the variance and me be the generator of it. But yeah, I think there's two little variants in government. Do I know who like the right person to bring it is? No. Um, and I don't want them to be in charge. I want them to have a sort of important voice, but not be the final decider. You know, we talk a lot about policy and like what policy measures could be put in place. And sometimes it can feel pretty frustrating to talk about policy and to know that some stuff won't get accomplished. How do you how do you deal with that? Like the you know, the frustration from living in a world where it can feel pretty stagnant. Yeah. Oh, I mean the amount of input to policy compared to the output to policy is just extraordinary. You know, you think right. of how many tax reform plans have been published versus how many tax reforms have actually happened. Um, I think you just have to think that one, you have to find it inherently interesting. I, and, and, and I think if I, you know, I have many faults, I think one of them, I probably spend a bit more time on things I find intellectually interesting and a bit less on things that are important and obvious. Um, and so, you know, but you have to sustain things. You have to work for 40 years and, you know, if, if that's, uh, if that's what your taste is. So I think it's important to do something that you find meaningful, exciting, interesting. And then, um, sometimes big things happen. Um, yeah. I worked on and got into President Clinton's budget in the year 2000, a proposal to reform the EITC. Um, that proposal went absolutely nowhere. Of course, it was going to go nowhere. It was the last year of his presidency. Um, I wrote a paper about it in, I don't know, 2003 or four or five or something. Um, and then I got Obama to propose it and it did happen and it's the law today. And so that took, you know, in that case, it was an eight year process between originally proposing it and seeing it become a law. And that affected over 10 million people. So you can do that once in your life. Um, and that's probably enough. And, you know, and, and I think for me, it's just the sort of trade-off of, do you want to be a doctor, in which case you know exactly who you help? Or do you want to work on health policy, in which case you have a one in a thousand chance that you're going to help a million people? And I think those are both incredibly valid. And to me, the more important question is, what can you do for 40 years? If you're going to get bored and frustrated because you're putting out health policies that no one does and you're going to quit it, shouldn't be doing health policy. You should be a doctor. 
Um, you know, conversely, um, if as a doctor, you get frustrated that like, yeah, I can help each person who comes in, but there's this broader set of social problems. I shouldn't, these people shouldn't be coming in in the first place. Like we should have solved it at some other level of society. Sure. Uh, you know, maybe they should have done health policy. So, um, uh, congratulations, Jason. I just got you uh, $50 million to spend over uh, five years to run the next great American think tank, which is going to come up with all the awesome new ideas. Um, is there anything you would like innovate on beyond, you know, the current structure of the way, um, you know, Massachusetts Avenue and like, you know, policy schools uh, end up sort of generating um, and proselytizing ideas? So, I mean, the first thing I do is go hire all of my favorite people um, that I've met over the course of my life and have them work there and figure out the answer to your question. Um, I am a little, I'm in the ThinkSpank space. I love the ThinkSpank space, but I do worry that the supply of the product policy ideas is really high. I'm not 100% sure what the demand is. It's not zero, but I do know the market clearing price is currently zero. <laughs> the products that we're all producing. And so um, the idea of adding even more to that supply um, makes me a little bit nervous. Um, in, you know, I do think climate and immigration to me are the two most profoundly important things for the future of our country, for the future of the world. On neither of them do I know what ideas are missing. On immigration, I just think we should have more. And then it's a question of how you do the political combination to get you there. On climate change, 85% of the solution is a carbon tax. And then we can haggle about what the other 15% are. Um, could the think tank figure out ways to like actually make progress and more than we have? I don't know. Is This is not my area at all, but is geoengineering sort of underexplored relative to its upside potential right now? Uh, you know, if you gave me a billion dollars, I think I might put it into geoengineering. Um, but that's sort of the quandary I, I would have. And, and look, it's not how I live my own life. This is what I spend my own time on. Um, and so that's, I should have a better answer for you on how to spend your $50 million. Um, I want to come back to status and politics. So, you know, economics, they got their own council in the White House. Um, you know, you have the National Security Council, but that's kind of like a different thing. Um, I've, I've read, you know, pitches for Council of Historian Advisors, the Council of, um, uh, you know, Sociologist Advisors. Like, do you think it makes sense having like more professions explicitly represented like within the EEOB? Or is this sort of just like a weird um, uh, fool's errand, which actually wouldn't end up making a ton of difference? Oh, I mean, one thing that's good about economics is it really is policy oriented. You know, if you go to an economics paper, it is about like, does this policy help or hurt? What is a policy solution to that? Political science, some people have said there should be a council of political scientists. Political scientists do a high ratio of lamenting the end of democracy to like specific. Oh no, proposals. we're definitely not giving political scientists. I'm sorry, we're okay, vetoing good. that on the face. Uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of the same thing with um, you know, with with historians. Um, sociologists, frankly, actually do think more about 
policy issues. We could debate who thinks more clearly about them and the like. Um, I certainly think in White Houses you should figure out how to get input from a variety of those things. And like, there's often like some presidential historian palling around with the president or, or whatever. Um, but no, I think the economy is sort of a big and important enough thing and economics is a good enough discipline that I think it's probably good we have that. I think I'd have five others. Yeah, I mean, you got your whole like, uh, like, uh, what is it called? The Harvard, it's like the Applied History Center or something, right? That's like trying to make this, make the case that like, you know, doing case study focused research, like Kissinger, this is also what he did after, um, uh, um, and Leo Pesvolsky as well, um, brought it to uh, Brookings back in the, uh, in the, in the 50s and 60s, trying to do like a case study based approach to inform, um, it was more sort of like foreign policy than, than domestic economics. Yeah. Look, I mean, I don't, I think I wouldn't be that much uh, enthusiastic about it, but you know, if you said instead of the council of economic advisors, there should be sort of a council of social scientists plus historians. And it was an interdisciplinary way to engage in the process and ask the same types of questions. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily crazy. Now it is the case much to the annoyance of every other discipline that economists also do psychology, economists do sociology, okay. economists do history. Um, and so if economists can do everything, why do you need anyone else? That was that was said with a joking tone for anyone reading the transcript, <laughs> or a half joking tone. Ninety two percent of economists oppose this idea of like pushing prices back down. But I think it's like 90 percent of people would be for it. And that's a huge disparity, right? Like there's this huge gap between what economists think and what people think. So like, what do you think the number one thing that we could do to address that would be to like help this? The number one thing, well, now I want to use the $50 million that you yeah. gave me okay, for sort of economics idea. education. Um, <laughs> yes. So we're going to use your economics education. And I, and I do think, look, I think sometimes, and I, I've done this myself, I think sometimes people bundle together education plus trying to get people to have exactly their view on everything. Sure. And when you do that, people get more resistant to the education. And so I try sometimes, not always successfully, to sort of unbundle it. Like, you know, when inflation comes out, here's the inflation data without my interpretation. Yeah. Here's my interpretation of the data. Here's the policy I would do based on that. And if you don't like my policy, you can still look at the data that I shared. Um, if you don't like my interpretation, I might give two or three to choose from and say why I think one is the most important. But here's two and three as alternative ones. And so a little bit more of giving people the tools to figure things out without like imposing lock, stock and barrel everything on them might create a little bit more receptiveness. But look, the other thing is people need to just ex figure out how to explain things better. Uh, there are people who have encouraged me to go to TikTok. Um, I don't think I'd be very good at it. I don't think I'd be very engaging. Um, what, do you, what do you think? I can help you. I, can help you. <laughs> I think um, you would be but, fine. Yeah. You'd be fine. Okay, that You'd was be fine. not yeah. the most resounding. Most resounding. Well, I mean, I can't say you're going to be great. Like, I don't know if you're going to be great. We have to do a few trials first. Um, but like, you know, my colleague Justin Wolfers is there now. Yes, He's great at it, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, you're there, and like, as far as I can tell. Um, and by the way, not everyone needs to do everything, right? Right. You need like some people publishing in economics journals, and some people <laughs> teaching classes, and some people on TikTok. And some people working in the government. And then you need like some people going back and forth between two places. But like economics is an ecosystem and it's a quite big ecosystem. And as long as the different parts are talking to each other 
you know, I've never been in the view like, oh, these theorists are wasting time or these policy people are not theoretical enough. I, I sort of like them both um, and like the TikTokers and like the journalists, et cetera. Um, I just want to make sure they're talking to each other and not in their separate silos, inventing crazy stuff or producing stuff that's totally irrelevant and doesn't go anywhere else. I want to talk about Goodreads for a second. So Amazon bought it in 2013 and basically has invested nothing into the platform. Um, two questions for you, Jason. Like, what are your top 10 uh, uh, feature, you know, what are, what are like five feature requests? And, you know, what what does this mean? Like, does this mean that we should never allow big companies to buy anything good again? Right. So I went through probably about four other online book review recommendation things before Goodreads and, you know, switch to it because either in many cases they cease to exist. Yeah. Um, and in some cases I thought Goodreads was less bad than they were. Um, I agree with you. I think that I don't like the interface. It's not good at recommending books to me. It's not good at showing me what my friends think. Um, it's sort of an ugly thing. There's too many ads. There's just so much. Um, that I don't like about it, but I still think it is a bit better than the others. And it's also the network where I'm more likely um, to see my other friends. Um, in terms of features, one, it should be much better. I, I, I've given it so much data. It should be much better at recommending things to me yeah. um, than it is right now. Um, it should be better. But, but Jason, you give everything five stars. I mean, like what is... My, there's too much great inflation there. I agree. I agree. Uh, but no, I, I actually recently gave Tess of the D'Abervilles two stars by Thomas Hardy. So I felt sort of good that I was, that that's like the most imaginative I've ever been about something that you're supposed to like. I just think it wasn't good. Um, but the, um, I don't know. So that's one thing I'd like to see. I'd like to see just sort of a cleaner feed where I can see my friends more easily. You know, we always want to see fewer ads. There's obviously a trade-off there. Yeah, so well, I also want of... to see better in analytics of my books. I'd love to see, you know, be able to press a button and like how many are by men or women, how many are in translation, not translation, you know, et cetera. What countries are they from? Library thing is actually better at some of good reasons. Mm. Um, the sort of alternate timeline played out in China where the website called Doban is now like it's like grown into like a social media hub and people post like long literary criticism and there's like meetups and and you review TV and movies and books um, and even plays. It's just like this very vibrant community because they had a founder who hasn't sold um, for like mixed reasons. But like it's just it's just it's not rocket science to make a website that tells you, uh, uh, you know, where you could like sort of review books and, and have it sort of build on 21st century technology as opposed to still living in like the um, I don't know, late 90s. I feel like is still almost where it's at. Um, Jason, how like what is your practice for the mini reviews? Like, do you not let yourself start another book until you write the review? Like, how can I get more discipline on this? <laughs> um. No, I, I I try to write the review before I start the next book, but that do, that often doesn't happen. Um, and I just sit down and write them in one sitting relatively quickly. Originally, I started this for myself as just a way to remember what I thought about the things that I had read. Now, there's definitely, I don't think there's like a huge number of people that read them, but there's some people that read them 
Um, and I haven't really changed very much. I'm still doing it for myself. And if you benefit from it, you're welcome to look at it. And if you don't, um, that's just fine. I, you know, no one paid me um, to do this for them. So uh, I don't know. It's just trying to write it as quickly as possible. And, you know, partly I'm trying to just summarize so I can remember the summary and partly figure out something I like. I don't know. The other thing I've tried to do, you know, I read Annie Lowry's Give People Money. I think Annie's terrific. I totally disagreed with that book, but I disagreed with UBI even before I read that book. And so I, in writing that review, I thought it'd be more interesting. I spent five hours reading this book. Like, what did I learn? You know, it's really easy to say everything I disagreed with in the book, all of which I disagreed with before the book, but the book added something to my thinking and changed my thinking a bit and figure out what I'd gotten out of it rather than prove I'm better because I can say what's wrong with your book. Um, it doesn't make you better. It's just a way to make yourself think you're better. Do you want to assign some like very lateral books to, um, you know, a Fed board chair, a president, a senator, like fiction only, maybe? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I just I like people in Washington who read things that were sort of lateral. The people reading the latest big book by such and such historian or the latest account of what happened in the White House was just... Says the, says the guy who's only reading the Iliad because it came out last week. Oh, no, no. Oh, the, the big thing that came Oh, no, no. I don't mind the big thing that just came out. Tim Geithner on his flight back from China would read literary fiction. Um, there are other people who would only read the like Truman biography and the, you know, Bob Woodward account of what had happened. Um, so, you know, anyone who's reading fiction... Uh, I think that's like a big improvement on the reading habits of some people in Washington, not everyone. Um, and then, I don't know. I mean, books like The Weirdest People in the World by Joe Heinrich, that to me was one of the coolest books I've read in recent years. Um, so everyone should read that too. Okay, but what what like what like piece of fiction embodies the energy that you wish American politics had more of in it? Don Quixote. What? what? It's like more Expand. vision, more like create. I mean, this gets to the variants we had before. Um, now, none of his ideas really worked out very well, um, but he was sort of undaunted by the problems he faced, um, constantly using his imagination. The dynamic I was talking about you need in organizations before is a little bit like the dynamic um, that Don Quixote and Sancho Panza have, although I guess Sancho Panza doesn't really push back. Um, on Don Quixote's ideas quite as much. Probably things would have turned out better for Don Quixote if Sancho had pushed back on some of those ideas. Um, plus, it's just sort of funny and has a wry outlook on life. So, yeah, I think that's what I'm sticking with. Definitely not Tess with the Dobervilles, which was two-star book. Why did you read it two stars? Like, what about it didn't appeal to you? I just thought it was like unrelenting misery, one thing after the next, that it like pretended to be really naturalistic, but it was really artificial and that all the language just felt like really overwritten. You know, normally I think if I think that about something that people who know what they're talking about think otherwise, I sort of tend to go with the people who think otherwise. But here I thought I'd just be like crazy and take a chance that all of the English professors just didn't know what they were doing, didn't know how to read. Mm -hmm. But normally, I think one's job is to figure out 
if people do know a lot, to try to figure out why they think what they think rather than to sort of arrogantly and instantly think uh, that you know otherwise, which, by the way, Sam Lindgren-Fried seemed to have done an awful lot of. It did yeah. work out for him for a bit. Yeah. Not long term. Not right now. It doesn't seem. Yeah. He's in trouble, it seems. Um, but, you know, so James Baldwin talked about, and we've sort of hit on it too, but he talks about how, like, you can learn so much from fiction. Like, basically every account that has already happened, everything that's already happened has happened to somebody else. And the only way that you learn that is through fiction. And it doesn't seem like people are reading as much, which is concerning for me as somebody who's about to publish a book. But how do you think that we can, you know, get more people to read or get people as excited as you are about reading books? I mean, look, I'm not totally sure that reading is necessarily better than watching television or watching sports or going for a jog with your friends. I'm not like, you know, to me, I really like it and I can't help but do it. And sometimes I actually wish maybe I'd like almost do a tiny bit less, but I can't help myself. But um, uh, the something positive that like society is should despair over this. Um, that being said, yeah, always like a little bit sad when somebody doesn't seem to like want to read books and happier and more excited when they do. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's like, I don't know, but look, I, you know, this, I think you can learn a lot of things, um, on social media too. So I, I don't think people say, Oh, you know, people only have the attention span of a gnat and they can't read this book. Um, I learn a lot from social media. Um, I try to share things on social media too. So the fact that there are more things that compete with our attention isn't that all those things are terrible and horrible. Some of those things are doing well in the competition because uh, because they're quite good. Just not good reads. <laughs> yeah, good reads needs to get it together. That's Maybe Elon way. Musk should buy it and turn it around. Mm. Get yeah. rid of the yeah. bots. Um, but look, Audible's like gotten much better. Like way better. Oh, here. Jason, what's your, um, uh, you get any feedback for trying to talk? I, you know, this is one of the few podcasts I listen to. So don't tell the other podcasters that. Um, I think it's great. I think you just get so many diverse topics. Um, I love when you occasionally have your emergency, uh, podcasts or whatever you call them. Um, and, uh, just keep it going. All right. And let's go out with one, one China take. I don't think we've mentioned the country yet um this show uh jason what does the world need to know i think the economic stuff with china is positive sum and the national security stuff with china has some positive sum components to it some zero sum components to it and some negative sum components to it and to me that's the complexity um, when somebody says they're doing blank to china because it's going to help american workers and make us richer i'm deeply skeptical if somebody says American workers should pay a small price um, to make the United States and the world safer, um, I have an open mind, but it gets much more complicated because then you're in a world of costs and benefits rather than in a world of um, alleged benefits and benefits. I had one sort of like White House process thing. Like I can't imagine the CHIPS Act folks were super psyched about Having all of those, um, uh, you know, like a, like center left riders um, in the in the sort of request for proposals with the daycare and the and the sort of labor unions and whatever else. Um, how does how does that like end up getting into a cabinet's like how does that flow down into like a document like that? Look, 
I don't like any of the baubles and trinkets. I think the CHIPS Act will be remembered as a success if we have more resilient chip production and maybe better chip production in the future. It will be a failure if we don't, and no one's ever going to remember the impact it had on child care or unionization or even place-based policy in the United States. So I think that um, you know the criticism of it on that grounds is 100% correct. I do respect that they're giving money to global companies, not just in the United States, that they are um, um, you know, not putting sort of nearly as many trade restrictions on as some might have wanted. So I think on the really big, important things, they're getting it right. But yeah, there's this whole political imperative around everything else. And I think part of it comes from people who kid themselves into thinking that there's no trade-off. And if you had a meeting and said, we're going to make childcare a little bit better and make the CHIPS program worse, maybe people wouldn't do it. But if your meeting is, hey, we're going to make childcare better, and by doing that, we'll attract better workers to our factory, and then our workers will make better CHIPS, and so it's win-win, um, then everyone wants to do win-win. So I think there's a little bit too much, a little bit like on the China issue, a little bit too much deluding yourself about win-win, and that's not grappling quite as hard um, when there's trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger thing is less the like, you know, you're half a percent less efficient in your asset allocation as the CHIPS Act, but more that all of a sudden you made something that was like pretty not like as nonpartisan you, as you can hope anything to be like now there is a Fox News talking point where there really didn't need to be any because like the upside, as you were talking about, is like, you know, we're not this is not an earned income tax credit. This is not a, um, uh, um you know, we're not uh uh, we're not taking, we're, you're not getting Obamacare out of it. You're getting like maybe yep. like 2000 slots in daycare in Arizona. Um, yep. and that's not worth risking, you know, chip sack round two, yep. um, for, for that, for that sort of upside. Right, right. Exactly. And I love childcare. I'd love a childcare policy, but it's sort of eyes on the prize. You can make this much progress on childcare here. Maybe this much on chips. Don't mess this up because you want this yep. tiny little sliver. That's what you just said. So I just need to repeat it. Um, Jason, you got a song for us to take you out on? No. No. Okay. I should have thought about that. Come up with something. Thanks so much, uh, Kyle and Jason, for being a part of China Talk. What a treat. Thank you. This is fun. My pleasure. Tell me you don't have more jobs today. Well, you told me last week to come back this week. Well, I know we all But tell me, what, what can I do, you know? I got family. I got my family to feed. I need to find a job. Come back next week. But let me say this to the people that's listening to this song. Now that the times are hard, you know you got to be strong. If you're weak, then there's a chance of you not surviving. Only the strong will survive. I just want to express myself. Let everybody know how I'm like.
Tomorrow, jobs get hard. 